Coming up next on KETR, it's North by Northeast, conversations that matter to Northeast Texas. In today's program, we'll hear a recorded interview with Michael Meredith. He's the son of Mount Vernon native and former Dallas Cowboys star quarterback Don Meredith. The topic will be a documentary that Michael Meredith made about the Ice Bowl. The documentary was produced for NFL Films, and we'll be discussing both the documentary and the Ice Bowl game, and also a lot about Don Meredith himself and Michael Meredith's experience as growing up as the child of the Dallas Cowboys star quarterback who also went on to become a much-loved announcer on Monday Night Football, that famous trio of Frank Gifford, Howard Cosell, and Don Meredith. That conversation and also KETR's own John Mark Dempsey will be in the studio. That's next on North by Northeast. Good morning and welcome to North by Northeast, conversations that matter to Northeast Texas. And we've got a special treat in store for you if you're a football fan, and I've heard it's a pretty popular sport around these parts. (laughs) We're going to be hearing a recorded interview with Michael Meredith. He's the son of Dallas Cowboy great Don Meredith, who, of course, is a local from this neck of the woods. Don Meredith went to Mount Vernon High School before going on to SMU and becoming the Dallas Cowboys starting quarterback. Joining me in the studio today is Blacklands Cafe host, John Mark Dempsey. He's also the lead play-by-play announcer for the Commerce Tigers high school football. And for those who don't know, Dr. Dempsey is uh, something of a sports historian. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. On an amateur basis. Yeah. I mean, nobody pays you to be a sports right. historian. Well, but some, some people get paid. Yeah, some people yeah. get paid. But, uh, but uh, Dr. Dempsey, of course, is... Uh, He's he's not so very venerable that he was an adult at the time of the ice bowl. Uh, he was uh, he was a kid, but he definitely remembers it. And uh, we're going to be talking about the ice bowl. And just to kind of set the stage for this interview that we're going to hear in just a short time, uh, the Dallas Cowboys. It's it's been fifty years. Um, and more now since the ice bowl. So many of the team's current fans aren't particularly familiar with that part of the team's history. When people think about vintage Cowboys teams, uh, the thoughts turn to Roger Staubach and Texas stadium. And there are many younger fans who don't even know that the Cowboys played at the cotton bowl for 10 seasons. And they don't know the story of the evolution of the Cowboys in the sixties, from an expansion team in 1960 that struggled mightily for the first few seasons and then very, very gradually rose to prominence in the NFL, made it to a couple of NFL championship games uh, and did not win either one, finally moving on to uh, the Super Bowl in the early 1970s and finally that long-awaited first Super Bowl championship at Super Bowl VI in 1972, January of 72. So, John Mark, before we hear this interview, we know that there are probably some Cowboys fans who aren't particularly familiar with that era in the team's history. So if you could give sort of a a thumbnail sketch 
of the Cowboys in the 60s and the years that led up to the Ice Bowl game, which was uh, January, I mean, I'm sorry, December of mm-hmm. 1967. Yeah, New Year's Eve, 67. Right. Uh, when I was uh, a kid and the Cowboys were, as you said, expansion franchise, did not have a winning, they started in 60, didn't have a winning season until 66. I was a Cowboys fan, but my friends would make fun of me for this. But they would say, oh, you like the Cowgirls. Cowgirls, because they, they were, were a losing team. And, uh, of course, I grew up in Greenville. And the Herald Banner, I vividly remember this, and I've, I've gone back to look at it again in recent years in microfilm. The Herald Banner would run ads in, on the sports page when the Cowboys were playing in the Cotton Bowl, and they were averaging maybe twenty five or 30,000 people a game. Uh, an adult could buy an end zone ticket for $1.50, $1.50, and bring four kids in free. Wow. And this, so this was a, an ad that ran uh, uh, repeatedly in the, in the Herald Banner. So it was a very different era. And then uh, 66, uh, it all changed, and uh, they, they uh, were winners. And uh, the big game, I think that it is – a game that is really lost to history is the is the first Thanksgiving Day game the Cowboys ever had. Uh, played in the evening, um, color television was new. Uh, was was for the first time that uh, that fall was was uh, was one hundred percent on network TV, and the Cowboys made the most of it. They beat the Browns, and the Browns used to be in the Cowboys division, and and they used to be uh, rivals, and. Uh, uh, huge game and that was the game on national tv that thanksgiving night 1966 the cowboys i think really became the cowboys and that that and then of course uh, went on to to lose the nfl championship game in the cotton bowl later that year and then the ice bowl the next year that you're talking about right that was really a landmark moment it was almost like the beatles appearing on ed sullivan yeah uh, as far as being the time when the cowboys really came into the national spotlight uh, they began, as you mentioned, in obscurity. They they really struggled. They entered the league same year as the Minnesota Vikings, and the Vikings even kind of they kind of got their act together before the Cowboys mm-hmm. did. Uh, Tom Landry was not universally beloved. Uh, he was an innovator, and people regarded a lot of his innovations with skepticism. Yeah, the multiple offense, and uh, you know the lineman standing up and and then coming back down before the snap and. Uh, a lot of people, even even after the Cowboys won their their first Super Bowl, a lot of people were never one hundred percent comfortable with Landry. People thought that he he had a a softer style, more intellectual sort of style, and they liked the you know the more physical sort of thing. There were people even after he had uh, won a, a Super Bowl that who, who still felt that way. But but uh, you know it all all changed there. Uh, in 66, and the Cowboys owned the town and really, to some extent, owned the country, you know, after that. They they really became the Cowboys in that moment, and, of course, that led to uh, their success uh, the following year, which led up to the Ice Bowl. Their, their image changed greatly uh, for those who have seen those old throwbacks with the blue and white uniforms where they, they looked kind of like the Colts a little bit in 1965. They changed their uniforms, introduced the uh, silver helmets and the silver-blue-gray pants that became 
the uh, trademark of the Cowboys. Uh, nobody else had that look. And another thing that they did with the uniform change was the club adopted the practice of wearing white mm-hmm. at home, mm-hmm. which was unusual, of course, uh, because the tradition in football is you wear your colored jerseys at home, you wear your whites on the road. Uh, the Cowboys management wanted Dallas to cultivate a special image. They reasoned that if they wore white at home, and then they'd be wearing white on the road because most of the time the home team would choose to wear their color jersey at home. So the Cowboys would all be, be seen with their white jerseys, and it would give them a very distinctive image uh, where people would always see that particular look. And then that was right around the same time that Meredith uh, had become the starting quarterback uh, in the early years of Dallas. They had uh, little Eddie LeBaron yep. back there at quarterback, and boy, did he ever take a beating. And Meredith took a beating, too. Oh, he really did. He really – more more than LeBaron, probably. But uh, And that was – his teammates greatly understood that and appreciated that. I'm not sure how much the, the general public appreciated it. I remember uh, Don's last year, I was at a game in the Cotton Bowl. This was 1968. And uh, seventy-two thousand people sell out. And uh, in those days, I, they may still do this. I don't know, but uh, they would introduce each player individually uh, before the game, just prior to the game. And Meredith came out of that tunnel in the Cotton Bowl, and it was half booing him mm-hmm. and half cheering him loudly. It was right down the middle, and it was not long. Of course, the, he, he retired before the next season. He just he'd had enough of, of that. Yeah, he was definitely underappreciated. But he he came into the national spotlight, as you mentioned, that 66 Thanksgiving Day game. That was the first time that the Cowboys hosted Thanksgiving. And that became a tradition. For many years, the Lions had played on Thanksgiving Day. Still do. And still do. And the NFL, uh, with the popularity of NFL broadcasts on TV, the, look, the league was looking to add a second Thanksgiving Day mm-hmm. game in the evening. And it was kind of up for grabs, and people didn't want to do it. But the Cowboys uh, took the took the offer and uh, and chose to host that game. And then, of course, it became a tradition. The brilliance of Tex Schramm, who was the general manager, as I mentioned, that was the first fall where all network television programming was in color. I remember, and there, the lights are still there. There's there are extra banks of lights in the Cotton Bowl. The horizontal banks of lights right. were put in for that game because of color television. And then uh, almost no teams painted the field, colored the end zone, decorated the end zones with designs and what have you. And uh, for that game on, on color television, it was like in the, the scene in The Wizard of Oz, you know, where Dorothy walks out of the, the bedroom in black and white, and then she walks into Oz and it's in color. It kind of had that, that feeling. So the, the presentation of that game on television was was. Enormous. It it really was a showcase for the Cowboys. And then Dallas hosted the NFL championship game at the conclusion of that season. And that was back when the NFL and the AFL still had a fairly high profile. And that was the championship game that would determine who would be the NFL's representative in the very first Super Bowl. So the Cowboys had an excellent chance to be the NFL representative in Super Bowl one. And they were hosting the NFL championship game at the Cotton Bowl, and they just barely lost. And Meredith took a lot of the blame for that loss. And in retrospect, it seems awfully unfair uh, that Meredith would be blamed for that loss. Well, they came down to fourth 
and goal at the two-yard line. And Landry called a pass. Yeah, he rolled out, and, and then the other thing, there's all kinds. You could write a book on what went wrong on that series of downs, almost literally. Right. Uh, they left Bob Hayes in for that play. Or and Bob he, Hayes did not come out, and, they, and Pettis Norman, the tight end, was supposed to be in there to block. Well, Bob Hayes was not a blocker. And he got steamrolled. Right, right. And so Meredith was, uh, had, had Dave Robinson wrapped around his neck. And through a desperation pass, that's all he could do on fourth down. It was intercepted. But yeah, uh, uh, people there there was a sizable group in Dallas that that just they, that that just uh, never uh, bought into Don Meredith. And there's been that way since with Danny White, and it was very much that way with Tony Romo. And uh, there were so, so three Dallas quarterbacks that were pretty darn good that a lot of people just never warmed up to. So the following season, the Dallas Cowboys once again found themselves in the NFL championship game. Now we're in 1967, New Year's Eve, yeah. and they don't get to host at the Cotton Bowl. Instead, they're traveling north to face the Green Bay Packers. And the weather up there in the Ice Bowl, was it wasn't just cold. It was what we now call a polar vortex. Yeah. Uh, kickoff temperatures well below zero, wind chill factors uh, in the negative 30s, there was a fan who, uh, an older fan there who yeah. died of hypothermia yeah. Yeah. during the game. Uh, there were some Cowboys who were uh, one of the uh, Cowboys uh, players, uh, Willie Towns, suffered pain in his hands from frostbite until the day he died, yeah. according to his wife. Bob Lilly stopped smoking as a result of that game. He wasn't a heavy smoker, of course, but like a lot of uh, NFL players back then, he smoked occasionally. Uh, you know, relaxing in the evening with a drink and a smoke. And his lungs hurt so much after that game, he never he told people he never picked up another wow. cigarette. So the Ice Bowl was a one of the most legendary games in NFL history. And so let's get into that interview here very shortly. We've got Jared Knight. He's going to cue it up for us. But, John Mark, you've got something? Let me tell you, just real quickly, yeah. there's a film, the NFL film of, of that game. And it's a, a shot of Landry on the sidelines and and – in the background, you can see the flag in the distance, and the flag is standing out in the wind. So it's not only 13 below. The wind's blowing about 20 miles an hour with, with 13 below. Yes, so it's just uh, the conditions were insane, and if, if something like that were to happen today, they probably wouldn't play the game. Probably would postpone it. So to just kind of let you know the context for this interview, NFL Films did make a, uh, a short movie, a short documentary about the Ice Bowl. But more recently, NFL Films started a a series called Timeline. And Don Meredith's son, Michael Meredith, is a filmmaker, and he produced a a one-hour documentary on the Ice Bowl for Timeline series from NFL Films. This uh, one-hour documentary on the Ice Bowl was a world premiere occurred in Mount Vernon. Uh, It was screened in Mount Vernon in late December of 2017. I was able to go over there and talk to Michael Meredith. He was a wonderful interview, very gracious, funny guy. Uh, We were over at the Mount Vernon Historical Association uh, where they have uh, lots of Don Meredith stuff on on display there. And there was a reception. You'll hear some crowd noise. And one thing I want to mention, uh, I kind of included... uh, the tape from the very beginning of the interview before we really got to talking, he knew that I was rolling tape. 
So don't think that, you know, I was being yeah. sneaky and rolling tape uh, without his knowledge. I, I had my recorder out and we were talking and I wanted to include this just because it was kind of a funny conversation. We started uh, talking about my mom actually went out on a date with uh, Don Meredith uh, in 1964, really, uh, during that brief period that he was single, and I and I made I made reference to it in the when I was talking with Michael, and I I didn't I kind of made a fool out of myself because I didn't have my dates right. I thought that my mom's date with uh, Don had happened in the early 60s. After I talked with Michael, I went and I looked it up, and I uh, induced or deduced that it had to be in 1964 oh. because he he uh, he got divorced from his first wife in 63. Sugar. Yes. And then Don married Michael's mom in 65. So Don was out and about on the town uh, with the most eligible bachelor in Dallas Dallas for uh, for about a year and a half there. So anyway, so having having said that, uh, we're going to listen. And later on this hour, we're going to open up the phones. We would love to hear reactions to this interview and uh, talking about the Cowboys in the 60s. Uh, and you can visit with John Mark. And uh, But right now we're going to listen to audio from December 2017, the world screening of the NFL Timeline episode dedicated to the Ice Bowl. And we'll hear from Don Meredith's son, Michael Meredith, on KETR. I really enjoyed the film. Thank Just you. to say before we even got started, now I was born two years after the Ice Bowl. So I don't have any personal memories. My mom went on a date with your dad. Ah, you're kidding. Yeah. She had a great time. When, when was this? Uh, this was sometime, obviously, before he met um, your mom. Yeah. Uh, but it was uh, early, early 60s in Dallas. Okay. I'll be darned. And, uh, yeah, he was, uh, I don't even know if he was starting yet. I think LeBaron was still the yeah. starter. Um, but she, um, she said he was a real gentleman. Uh, and uh, she had a great time. She didn't get a call back, but she didn't really take that as any sort of slight. I think he probably had his pick of, of Dallas at the time. He might so. have had a few few gals that were yes, know, hoping yeah. he would call. But. Yeah, no, she was she was real cute too. I'm I'm sure he had a pretty good time too. Uh, so anyway, but she she said he was he was just everything that you think he'd be. Uh, and I've heard people say that. He was one of those people that his actual self matched his image. Yeah, yeah, and that's not, um, I mean, I've worked with some famous folks and, you know, doing my directing with actors, and I won't say any names, but it is rare in my experience that when they um, drop the pretense or they kind of leave the act, uh, who they really are isn't the same. They try to they try to appear to be more um, likable or a better person than they are in the right. public eye, right? Which is which is understandable, of course. But, but he he was just a genuine guy. You know, he was the real deal. Everybody, I mean, everybody had highs and lows, and I've, I've seen him had you know grumpy days and of course happy days. But um, who who most people thought he was is who he was. Let, let's scoot over here before we actually do the interview because I'm getting a little ambient noise from in there. So, um, so I know you mentioned this a little bit when you were in there, but I wasn't recording. So what was your impetus for beginning this project? It's a long story. I'll try to make it short, but I, um, I, I, I originally envisioned doing it with actors and making it a two hour feature film. 
and I had seen Saving Private Ryan and was really um, impressed by the, particularly the Normandy sequence that Spielberg and his, his camera guy, Janusz Kleminski, shot. And my dad had seen it. He thought it was pretty cool. And the vets that were there saw it and said, that's what it was like. That, you know, they were really impressed. So I, I thought maybe I could do something with the ice bowl and I could use the players as consultants and the new technology, maybe even that same camera guy. Um, and try to make, this is going to sound arrogant, but try to make the most authentic sports film or football film to date. And I talked to Dad about it, and he said, well, tell it like it was. That was, that was his advice. So I didn't get a chance to do that. The uh, 50th anniversary kind of came up too fast. I went off and did some other projects, but I, I had time to do a documentary. And um, it was a research phase for what will come next year, which is going to be called First Cowboys, a two-hour length documentary. Um, but the Ice Bowl, we're, I think, 48 hours away from the, literally the 50th anniversary. And this is uh, to honor that and to all the folks that were part of that story. Now, um, NFL Films did make a special about that. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, it relied very heavily on uh, broadcast audio. Um, was that kind of a starting place or where did you, because whenever you're crafting a story, I mean, a documentarian, you've got artistic license. You don't have to make it like a, a news feature. Yeah. You can, you can construct the narrative however you want. So, but the hardest part of course is getting started. So how did you get started? Well, I, I went, uh, first person I called was Bart Starr. I thought, you know, there's the two, the two generals, my dad wasn't around anymore. So I called Bart. And I'll, I'll never forget, he gracious, I mean, a, a gentleman like he'd never met, you know. But he, he uh, I said, Bart, I'm Michael Meredith, we never met. I'd like to come to your home in Birmingham, Alabama, and film you and your wife, Cherry, um, to do, do this show, Would You Let Me? And there was a pause, and he said, very suspicious. <laughs> but of course, I, of course you can come. And he thought, here's the son of the guy who lost the game telling the story. What's the angle going to be? And, you know. But uh, that's where I began. I began in Birmingham almost four years ago to the day with Bart and Cherry and his son, Bart Jr., and then learned from whatever I could glean from that. I took the next interview and the next interview and started to form the, the narrative idea. And then NFL Films came along in the last year, and um, the guy, you, you mentioned the first Ice Bowl documentary, um, the producer of that it was in his last year or last couple months of, of working in NFL films. He retires next uh, February. A man named Dave Plout. He had a tremendous amount of knowledge. And um, another producer, Julia Harmon, the three of us worked together and kind of figured out the perfect balance of an old epic telling of the story and a, a sort of newer, fresher look from the cowboy perspective. Uh, Walt Garrison, obviously... Uh... <laughs> He's gold as yeah. far as, as, you know, interviews go. What, what was it like working with him? He was, uh, I mean, one line after another. You could so much ended up on the editing room's floor because we only had an hour. And Walt could just almost do a film by himself. But, uh, yeah, incredible guy. Uh, incredible stories. Um, uh, there's an authenticity there, too, where he's a, he's a real cowboy. You know, part of his uh, original contract signing bonus was a horse trailer. And um, then he wouldn't do the deal unless that was in there. So that, those kind of guys that really walk the walk, that the talk is, 
you know, they're, they seem to be rare. You don't see them every day, and, and Walt's one of those guys. So, I bet you knew going into it that he would be a real fun interview. Who was who a surprise to you? Who, uh, among the people that you spoke with, you, you know, didn't necessarily have any expectations one way or the other, and then you were blown away once you started talking to them? Well, the, the Packers in general, I didn't know any of them. Uh, Walt and, uh, and all the Cowboys I had known as a kid, some I'd seen along the way, but some I hadn't seen in years. But I did know them, and I had memories of them. Um, so there was no real shocker coming from – they're kind of like family – the, the Packers, um, I didn't know how I'd be received or if they would embrace me. And they had such an, a huge amount of affection for my dad that what, what trickled down to me as a director. And um, that was impressive. And that made me feel a lot of pride for my pop, just knowing, like, even the enemies loved him, you know. Um, but Jerry Kramer was one of them, Chuck Mercine and there was a handful of those guys that just told amazing stories. And uh, it was a pleasant surprise to interview them. What was the most challenging part of, of doing this film? Trying to find the balance of what what I thought was interesting and what an audience would think is interesting. Because it's um, obviously a personal take on, on the story, and there's a lot of um, family dynamic and the emotions off the field um, that, that I, through the research process, thought, this is amazing, this is fascinating drama, but really it was only to me because <laughs> it was my mom or my dad. and um, So I think the balance, subjectivity and figuring out what would play for an audience versus just a home movie kind of feel. The parts with your mom, I don't think you have to be a cowboy fan to have found those very moving and um, easily as powerful as any of the uh, storytelling about what went on on the field. Uh, how did the journey of making this affect you and your mom and, and y'all's relationship, and how do you think it affected her? Well, you know, I was asked this question uh, yesterday, like, how did, how, did you, how did I get my mom to open up or do the interview? And the answer is she didn't have a choice. <laughs> I was like, Mom, you're doing this. Um, but the, the truth is for her to really kind of pour her emotion out and talk about uh, something that I didn't realize was so painful, you know, that there was... I knew it was a tectonic shift. There was a, you know, the ice pole was a big moment, a pivotal time. But um, it really broke her heart. And I think she even says it in a way it wounded her soul. So for her to open up, even though it's her son talking to her and it's, a, you know, um, she, she can trust me not to, you know, put anything too, too you know, brutally honest in there. Um, she did really tell it like it was. She uh, she speculated that my, that might have been a big reason why uh, your dad decided to retire um, at, at 31. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that in his retirement? Because I know that it, it got a lot you know speculation, people speculating about his physical well being, people speculating about his relationship with Landry. So what 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 are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah. I- as a as a filmmaker, you, you try to distill things and kind of come up with one answer, and, and life's never that that simple. Um, and and in this film, we kind of do present one of several um, you know, hypotheses of of the ice bowl was the one that really changed everything for him, and um, that's why he retired. 
I don't, I don't think it's life's, I forget the Oscar Wilde truth uh, saying, but it's the uh, pure and simple truth is never pure and rarely simple. Or, um, it's that kind of thing. So the ice bowl played a huge part of it, for sure. Um, his physical state was deteriorating. He'd been playing for nine years, and in the early years there was no offensive line, and he took a pretty bad beating, very tough guy. And then Landry was not the typical coach that um, he was used to, like here in Mount Vernon. And even at SMU, there's more of a um, paternal kind of father figure coach that, that guys are used to. And I think that my dad w- may have responded to better than, than Landry, who was a genius and um, you know changed the game, but wasn't always as, as uh, emotionally supportive as some of the players would have preferred. And I, I just guess they were kind of like oil and water, you know. I found out one interesting, really fascinating fact. After the 1960 championship game, Packers lost to Philadelphia. Vince Lombardi was very upset with the team, all of the players. He picked up the phone and called Tom Landry and, and said, any two players on my team, pick any two that you want and give me Meredith. I'll make the deal right now. And that included legends. Jim Taylor, Thunder and Lightning, and Bart St- I mean, imagine being offered that trade today. And, and I know my dad had a lot of respect for Landry, and they were both more of, um, you know, there's, they were emotional guys. So I, I wonder, you know, what that would, I would have been born in Green Bay. You know, <laughs> that would have broken the Texas lineage, because I'm fifth generation, but uh, you just never know, you know. But I think Landry, that relationship played a part of a role in it, too. Well, uh, as far as uh, Lombardi goes, you know, one of the one of the reasons why his legacy shines in addition to his on-field success is that, um, you know, being of an ethnicity that wasn't fully accepted in mainstream U.S. at the time, his views on race were a lot more progressive than some other people involved in the NFL at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that your father would have been on the same page with him when it comes to that. Uh, you're talking about your next project and the... Uh, the uh, story of just the whole team and its evolution in the 60s. What storylines are jumping out to you in addition to just the obvious on-field things? Yeah, most of the story happens off the field, but it's the frame, the bookends, and the, um, not the narrative thread, but the the lens that we see the story through um, is the team and my dad. Um, He was the first cowboy before they had Landry, before they had a name. Um, shortly after him was Don Perkins, so the, the two Dons. When my, the day my dad retired, Perkins decided to retire, and they are the framework of the original Cowboy, the first Cowboy team. Um, through their eyes, Don Perkins, and you mentioned civil rights or Lombardi's colorblindness, he really blazed some trails, and Mel Renfro and Pettis Norman, and um, the Cowboys did a tremendous amount for progress. Um, even in uh, women's liberation and women's rights, uh, the first female front executive you know, um, at the Cowboys that ran the ticket sales, uh, what was happening in Dallas at the time, in my opinion, was fascinating. Uh, it got overshadowed, understandably, by JFK and the assassination, but Mary Kay came out of, of that time period, and the microchip and pillars like Stanley Marcus and Mayor Johnson and... Um, and then right in the middle of all of it was the Cowboys. And somehow my dad 
seem to know almost everybody in, in town. So a great character to follow telling the story of Dallas or North Texas during that time is, is my dad and the Cowboys because they, um, they really you know, paved a lot of roads and blazed a lot of trails. Uh, I know you want to get downstairs. There's some people to visit with, so I'll kind of wind up. Um, as far as your dad, after he retired, he had appeared to be as fun a uh, post-retirement career as anybody who ever retired from the NFL. Was he happy? Was he satisfied? Um, how, how was it, you know, looking back as an adult, thinking about your dad, obviously you can look at him in a different way than you did at the time as a child. Uh, and I know lots of people hope that he enjoyed those years, particularly because although he had a blast playing football, in many ways his career was uh, real hard on him. So was was he really enjoying those times in the 70s? That's an interesting question and a tough one to answer because um, I don't want to take anything away from those, those glory days. I, I can tell you unequivocally for certain he uh, was... He loved the fact that people enjoyed that, that he gave them joy, that they could laugh, and that they tuned in on Monday night and turned off their lights when he sang Turn Out the Lights. And um, and I remember those days. I was a little kid on the tour and never going to a Monday in school, and I, I remember seeing the admiration of uh, folks that just coming in and out of the stadiums and all that. And he did bring a lot of people a lot of joy, and that made him feel good until until his last day on this earth. Um, I, I wonder now, knowing how much he felt like um, he didn't accomplish what he had hoped to when he played with the Cowboys, how, if it was tough to sit in a booth and watch his team go on and do the things that he wanted to do and win the Super Bowl. Um, and you hear Roger Staubach in the, in the documentary tonight. He kind of says that was Don's team. I was, you know, just took it to the over the finish line. So I would – I just – Imagine that there had to be uh, it had to be a little tough to to announce essentially watch what you hope to do happen in front of you with you know your teammates and a lot of the things that you help build. Um, I, don't, I don't know. So you know, I, like I say, every everybody wakes up on the wrong side of the bed some days. I definitely saw that with my dad. I definitely have it myself. You know, um, and there was those days. And I think he got a little burnout on the announcing. At one point, uh, near the end of that career, he was in a game looking down and said, you know, I think I've seen this game before. And that was one of the last games he announced. So um, uh, I think if he had his choice, my, my theory is he would have rather won the Super Bowl and been on that field doing it himself than, than announcing. What, what did... Uh and this is kind of an aside, but I mean, after he retired, he, you know, they moved to Santa Fe, deliberately took a step back from the public eye. Um, what, what was he doing with his time during those years? Yeah, well, he, um, he played uh, a lot of free cell. That was one of his hobbies. Um, he painted a, a little bit, read a lot, and and. I remember just hanging out by the fire. Um, he had a, a kind of close little circle of friends out there in Santa Fe. We did some fun things. He was um, he did some acting. He did The Odd Couple with Frank Gifford there and uh, Ducks in a Row, another play with some friends of mine. But really just got, you know, eased into the latter years and retired. 
just kind of hid out and enjoyed being out of the limelight after all those years. So. But I would pull him out of it every now and then, like you see in the movie. I got him to do the role in my first film, and we got us, you know, set up in Cleveland and had some good father-son times, but he sort of disappeared. Michael Meredith speaking with me. I was over there in Mount Vernon in December of 2017 for the screening of the NFL Films Timeline documentary on the Ice Bowl. We're going to open up the phones here. Uh, We've got about 20 minutes left in the program, a little less than that. We're going to have just a little bit of music to give folks a time to uh, get over to the phone. Hopefully we'll get a call or two from folks out in Northeast Texas who want to uh, visit with Dr. John Mark Dempsey, uh, KETR's in-house sports historian, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, football. And so the number to call is 800-882-5387, 800-882-KETR. So we're going to hear just a little bit of uh, one of Don Meredith's favorite artists. You recognize that lilting guitar sound. 800-882-5387. That's 800-882-KETR. The closer I get to my home, Lord, the more I, wanna... I wouldn't be there. Morning Edition is 40. Time flies. Hi, I'm Rachel Martin, and you understand the world better because you listen. Support understanding. Join the listeners who give every month. Call 800-882-5387 or go online to KETR.org and click Donate. You're listening to North by Northeast, Conversations That Matter to Northeast Texas. My name's Mark Haslett. I'm your host this morning. In here with me is Dr. John Mark Dempsey. He is a man of many hats here on the campus of A&M Commerce. He's a professor, but we know him as the host of the Blacklands Cafe and the play-by-play voice of the Commerce High School Tigers. Uh, We didn't get any calls during that break. Maybe folks were just too busy enjoying that Willie Nelson song, Going Home, (laughs) off the uh, 1971 Yesterday's Wine album. Uh, And maybe folks would just rather listen. Uh, If if you're out there enjoying the program, you don't have to call. But if you want to, the phones are still open, 800-882-5387. That's 1-800-882-KETR. And... uh, Dr. Dempsey, you and I were listening to that interview with Michael Meredith that we heard a few minutes ago and talking about those 1960s cowboys. I saw you making some notes over there. Right. Well, you know, 1969 came, no Don Meredith, and and it was the same old story for the cowboys. So all the people that that blamed it on Meredith had to find somebody else to blame it on. Craig Morton was the guy that they thought was really the guy that, uh, that should be the quarterback. Craig had his chance, and uh, you know it was even worse. You know the the end of uh, the '69 season, terrible loss, and the rain and the Cotton Bowl against Cleveland, awful. And but Craig was hurt. Craig was never really the guy that the Cowboys expected because he was hurt even before that '69 season started, and so we never really saw the guy that Craig Morton might have been. But anyway, but the, you know the the thing was that it got no did not immediately get better after Don retired until Roger Staubach stepped in. Yeah, there, there was uh, the evolution. Uh, Meredith retired at the end of the 68 season. Yeah. 
And then in 69, the Cowboys in the first year under Morton. Staubach played a little bit. As you mentioned, Morton was hurt. Staubach played some. Uh, but it was mostly Craig Morton's year, and the Cowboys had kind of a, they took a step back in 69. It was not a good year for them. The following year, 1970, uh, Morton once again at the helm uh, when he was uh, healthy. And uh, the Cowboys finally, that, that was the first year after the merger. Mm-hmm. So uh, the uh, the AFL was absorbed by the NFL, yeah. and the Cowboys won the NFC championship and faced Baltimore in the Super Bowl, and uh, they called that one the Blunder Bowl. Yeah, uh, the Cowboys that year that was I think the the best defense I have ever seen an NFL team for at least for the second half of that season and through the playoffs. They they got to the Super Bowl on, on defense. And, again, Craig's uh, shoulder was so bad. And in, in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, Roger should have been in as quarterback. But, you know, Landry just hadn't made that decision yet. But it's easy to, to imagine that had uh, Roger been the quarterback uh, in that Super Bowl, they, they would have beating the Baltimore Colts in that game. That was a game that really, really hurt. In some ways, it might, as hurt, it might have hurt as much as the Ice Bowl in some ways. Uh, a frustrating loss. Uh, Dallas, probably on paper the better team against a very yeah. old yeah. Colts lineup. Uh, some people blame Landry. Uh, well, Dwayne Thomas uh, was running all over the Baltimore defense, but he fund, fumbled yeah. and Landry got mad and uh, turned away from Thomas and toward the passing game, which didn't end up doing very much. So some people yeah. uh, say that if Landry had just uh, let Thomas uh, do what he had been doing and just handed the ball to Dwayne Thomas, uh, that he would have um, that he would have led the Cowboys to their first Super Bowl victory. It reinforced the stereotype of Dallas not being able to win the big one. You know, they lost that uh, NFL championship game uh, to the Browns, and then they lost the Ice Bowl, and then they lost Super Bowl V, and then it all changed the following season. Yeah, when they, they beat uh, finally beat the Miami Dolphins uh, with, with Roger at, at quarterback. I didn't feel that way in, in, in 70. I thought they, they, they won two big games to get to the Super Bowl. I thought they had they definitely had moved forward. Uh so I I personally was not all that disappointed uh by that. I thought that well, at least that's better than losing in the first round uh, to the Cleveland Browns, which had happened uh, the, the previous two years. That Super Bowl is the famous uh, thing, famous uh, scene of, of Bob Lilly at the end of the game throwing his helmet about 50 yards out of frustration, you know. So but uh, but it all all uh, all's well that ends well, and they they did win that Super Bowl uh, the the following year. Then had that great run in the seventies with uh, Staubach at, at quarterback. The context of all this, and I, I don't know if you may have said this at the beginning, is that the Cowboys, of course, are playing the Packers this Sunday, which is kind of the, was the spark for you right know, for having this program yeah, today. Yeah, so that's a great rivalry, and uh, it seems like it's it's always a, a great game when the Cowboys and Packers play. Another thing that's forgotten about. Uh, Cowboys uh, back in in that era when they played in the Cotton Bowl, there was a game uh, called the Salesmanship Club game, a preseason game every year, and they played the Packers. And this was even before the Cowboys became a winning team. And the Salesmanship Club game played in August, a preseason game, was always a sellout. It It was the highest attended game 
of the year because it was a charity game and the salesmanship club in Dallas, which I don't know still whether it still exists, they had a, a, a children's camp or something. The money went to the children's camp. But that was that preseason game every year is one of the biggest games of the years for the Cowboys, uh, which is ironic because now when nobody pays the slightest attention you know, to, to preseason games. What type of uh... – talking about going back to the the Meredith era yep. in, in the 60s what type of quarterback was Don Meredith on the field he's we're all familiar or those of us who are familiar with Meredith are familiar with his charm his personality uh, he was a smart guy a witty guy good-natured the perfect foil uh, for uh, the straight man uh, Frank Gifford and the uh, irritating and provocative <laughs> Howard Cosell. Right. That really was the the ultimate football yeah. broadcast team there. Yeah. But on the field as a quarterback, how would you characterize Meredith's play for those who uh, never saw him on the field? He was a gunslinger as much as Tom Landry would allow a quarterback of his to be a gunslinger. And in those days... They didn't worry about interceptions as much. If you look at Joe Namath's statistics, it's eye-opening to see how many interceptions he threw. But they didn't worry about it as much. But Don, uh, uh, excellent passer. Uh, he passed on the rollout a lot. He, 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 uh, and, and that was maybe a little bit different than most quarterbacks in that era. Uh, he would set up in the pocket, but Don liked to throw on the rollout, and they had a lot of success with that. He was a pretty good runner. Uh, he, he, he scored quite a few touchdowns in close. They would, they would roll him out uh, there from the two- or three-yard line, and he was very effective uh, that way. So uh, he was – and when Bob Hayes came, then, you know, that, that was what a combination that was, and that was so much fun to watch those guys uh, work together and, and connect. And that's just a, an image I will always have in my mind of, you know, that, that, the long bomb from Meredith to, to Hayes. But he was, uh, he was entertaining player not only as uh not only entertaining as as a personality he's an entertaining player the cowboys today are so very different an entity from the cowboys of that time uh they were not the america's team moniker people blame the cowboys for that for the, for those nfl fans around the country who find that irritating yeah. um they blame the cowboys uh for being uh for uh, the uh, America's Team moniker. Actually, you can't blame the Cowboys for that. NFL Films came up with that. That's right. Uh, that was uh, the title of an NFL Films mm-hmm. production about the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they were not this phenomenon. Back during Meredith's time, they emerged into the phenomenon. But at the time, they were just a city's NFL franchise. So could you kind of describe how it was watching the Cowboys evolve from this bumbling expansion team uh, that people made fun of, as you mentioned, because at the time college football was far more popular in Texas than the NFL. And then the evolution of the Dallas into the cultural phenomenon that they became in the seventies and beyond. By the time uh, we, we talked about that 66 season, they, they, uh, from from that point on, they were a really fun team to watch, and um, there were two teams to me. And, and this is it's ironic that it's these two teams. The two most entertaining teams of, of that era were the Cowboys and the Kansas City Chiefs, who had been the Dallas Texans, of course, 
under Hank Stram, and then they, they moved to Kansas City. But both of those teams had that, that – there was a flashy quality. Uh, they were different. They had just a, a different style of, of play. Uh, I don't know that they threw more necessarily, but they moved their uh, backs around. They had uh, multiple formations, and, and uh, those, those two teams were really entertaining and, and fun teams to watch. And it's, uh, it's too bad that they – it came so close that they would have met in the first Super Bowl. Because the Chiefs made it, and the Cowboys came within two yards of making it, and what a great story that would have been as the two teams, the two Dallas teams, uh, that started out in 1960 if they had met in the first Super Bowl. That really would have been amazing, and another reason why it was such a disappointing loss. And uh, perhaps some, some folks out there have read uh, John Eisenberg's Ten oh. Gallon War, which is well, a that's fa- great. And then he has a book. I'm sorry, I, I no, stepped it's, Ten yeah. Gallon War is but the, the book about the Cowboys and the Texans, and that right. is a great book. But he wrote a book before that 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 fits in exactly with this conversation. It's called Cotton Bowl Days. Yeah, and that's a wonderful read. That is a great book, and it's written from his. And we, he and I are about the same age, and from a child's perspective mm-hmm. of going to the, to the games in the Cotton Bowl with his family uh, from 1960 uh, all the way th- through that entire era. And, uh, wow, that is, that is a great book. It really is. And he was, he was like you. He was a Cowboys fan, even though the Texans were having more on-field success. Texans brought the first pro football championship yep. to Dallas in 1963. 62. I mean, 62. Yeah, the end of 62, yeah. Right, And, uh, you know, that was a good deal. I don't think that the the Texans were any less popular than the Cowboys, but but neither one of them, you know, made all that much of an impact. And Lamar Hunt, when they won the AFL championship in 62, and they're still having trouble putting more than 20,000 people in the seats, that's when he decided to go to Kansas City. And in retrospect, it ended up being a smart move Mm -hmm. for him. Well, they could not. There's no way Dallas could support two teams. Long term, I've often wondered if if the Texans had gone to Fort Worth, could that could, could that have worked? That might have been interesting. That might have been very interesting, but we'll never know. Uh, we've been visiting with John Mark Dempsey, and uh, earlier this hour, you heard an interview with Michael Meredith, the son of Don Meredith. We'll get that posted at ketr.org a little bit later today. And you've been listening to North by Northeast here on listener supported radio for Northeast Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've had lots of fun here. I hope you've had some fun as well. And uh, stay tuned. The Texas Standard, the national news show of Texas, coming up at 10 here on 88.9 KETR. Night here at your station, 88.9 KTR, one minute away from 10 o'clock. So happy you're joined us on uh, North by Northeast. 
So happy to uh, have you along on this Friday morning. You know the pledge drive rolls along here at 88.9 KETR. Right now, if you haven't yet, you should consider going online to KETR.org and clicking the big red donate button up in the top right-hand corner or by picking up the phone and calling 800-882-KETR. That's 800-882-5387 right now in order to support fantastic public radio just like this here in Northeast Texas. You know public radio isn't something that every community throughout uh, rural America has, but we do have it right here in Northeast Texas, and we have it thanks to the dedicated support of listeners just like you. So if you haven't already, go right now to KETR.org and click the donate button, or head uh, pick up your phone and call 800-882-KETR. That's 800-882-5387, and make your gift of support right now to 88.9 KETR Commerce.